0: Our reading this evening is from Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. You'll find it on page 1180 of the Church Bible. 1180 Philippians chapter 3. Beginning at verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I want to know Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so, somehow, to attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, do keep um, that passage of the Bible open this evening as we uh, turn to give it our consideration. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the Apostle Paul and that he not only wrote, but that his writings have been uh, kept and treasured and passed down the ages. And we pray this evening that you would grant us understanding and we would be able to apply it to our thinking and to our behaviour and bring uh, glory to you and benefit to others and others. Amen. Well, um, it may seem an an odd word to begin the uh, chapter three, finally, because he's actually only halfway through his letter. In fact, there's another finally, which is only halfway through the last chapter. So the first thing to learn is that when the Apostle Paul says finally, he doesn't actually mean he's near the end. Well, the context of um, this uh, letter is what are called Judaizers. They wanted to keep the Jewish law. They were people from a Jewish background. They had embraced something of the Christian faith, but they did not want to relinquish the law, which, uh, much of which God had only intended to be temporary. On Sunday mornings, we're working our way through uh, Deuteronomy in vast chunks. And uh, at the moment, we've been considering the law and how it's classified into three sections. There are the civil law, the moral law, and the ceremonial law. The civil law is really health and safety stuff, really. So if you build a new house, in those days they had, in that part of the world, they would have flat roofs, you have a roof garden, It's a good thing to put a little parapet around it so that your guests, after a little bit of uh, vino, don't topple over the edge. It's also good to have boundary markers, like we have fences and walls, because that delineates your property from somebody else's. Then there are moral laws, things like murder, adultery, theft and lying are no-no's, and the ceremonial law, all the details of a very elaborate sacrificial system which were meant to illustrate a couple of things. The first was the enormous gap between a holy, distinct God and sinful human beings. And then to give some kind of illustrative and educational, um, if you like, steer for how that gap um, could be breached, that what was required was some kind of perfect, unblemished substitute to to pay the penalty. For human sin. Now of course they realised that um, animals were no substitute for human beings. And yet there was no human being who had ever been born who was without blemish. Except of course Adam in the first place who quickly blew it. And later our Lord Jesus himself. Now Jesus, because he was a human being, he would be able to represent us to God. And because he was divine, he would be perfect. And that was the effective solution to our problem. A problem which has been provided, a problem which has been solved by the provision of God himself. And that being the case, the ceremonial laws are defunct. They are no longer needed, except perhaps as an illustration Of what Jesus' death in our place on the cross for our sins meant and achieved. If we understand that sacrificial system uh, better, then we understand New Testament books like Hebrews better, and by doing so, we understand the meaning of the cross for us much better. Otherwise, it's of no great interest. It has been fulfilled. But uh, these people with a Jewish background were reluctant to ditch that ceremonial law and to be free of it. They tried to enforce it on Gentile converts to Christianity. And it was quite unnecessary for them to do so. So yes, they actually expected uncircumcised male Gentile converts to be circumcised. And the apostle calls those who insist on that mutilators of the flesh for what they were demanding of these new Christians. In Acts 15, they are reported as saying, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. And so they are referred to as those who do evil which might seem rather strong, rather over the top, but it's not when you realise that what these Judaizers, Judaizers were really still holding on to was salvation by works. The brownie point system, where you kid yourself that you are good enough to earn your way into God's good books, when of course we're not. One mistake and we've blown it completely. Christianity is salvation by faith. Christ provides for us the means by which our salvation is possible. And we just have to be humble and penitent enough to accept that offer. To do so, though, is of course an affront to our pride and it is hard for us to swallow. Penitent, incidentally, means to truly and seerly and sincerely say sorry. Well, what is Paul's response to these people? We read verse three, we are the circumcision. Now circumcision was the mark which distinguished Jews from non-Jews, Jews as the people of God, from all the other people who at that time were not the people of God. But now the people of God, post-Christ, are not the Jews, but they are the Christians, made up of Jews who have recognised Jesus as the Messiah, and also of Gentiles, those from other nations, and potentially every nation of the world. Now they, Paul claims, are people who have undergone a circumcision of the heart. They've had an internal transformation, not just a merely external chop, if you want to think of it like that. That enables them, the internal circumcision of the heart, enables them to live out what they had entered, something which in Old Testament times was not possible prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they recognised that impossibility and through them God promised and hinted that there would come a time when he himself would live within our hearts to enable us to do what alone we cannot do. So he's really saying to these guys, hands off our vocabulary. And then follows three marks of membership of the people of God. One, who worship by the Spirit of God. Worship and service in Greek is exactly the same word. So whether we are coming to a service, as we are this evening, or whether we are serving God in the world, as most of us will be doing tomorrow, both are what we are meant to do. Both are enabled by the Spirit of God, now living and active in the life of the believer. When I was growing up in my North Kent small town, there was a road sweeper called Dusty Miller. I guess his first name was acquired with his job. But I I knew who he was because he was also a leader of a scout group that I briefly belonged to. And he was always cheerful, doing his job, friendly, kind to all. Which, and, he, and he obviously did a very good job in keeping the, uh, the gutters of Herm Bay's town centre clean. And I'm sure he was enabled to do that because he was also a Christian, who I'd see in church on Sunday, carrying out his other act of worship, both energised by the Spirit of God within him. Another mark, who glory in Christ Jesus. That's the number one purpose for the believer and for the church. That in all that happens or is done, that the Lord Jesus Christ gets all the credit. Any glory goes to him. And then the third mark, who put no confidence in the flesh. We, if we're genuine believers, refuse to believe that we can contribute anything to our salvation other than our sins. For it's not the external rites of passage, circumcision, baptism, confirmation, certification, uh, licenses, ordination or consecration, that in themselves are important. They are only external signs. What matters is the internal reality, which they can represent. And only if that is so, is such public uh, signage of any positive significance. If anyone could claim such external rights would do you any good, it was the Apostle Paul himself. Verses 4 to 6. He had the advantage of having been born and brought up in the people of God, with all the privileges of that covenant relationship that went back 2,000 years to Abraham. He had natural advantages, and he had advantages which he himself nurtured. So the natural advantages, we read, are circumcised on the eighth day, a sign of membership of the people of God at that time, the Jews. That was a religious advantage. He is of the people of Israel, a national advantage. He was part of it through membership by birth rather than by adult adoption. You see in the New Testament God-fearers who hang around the synagogues and who get uh, to to go in and to become Jews but only in their adult life. There is a great advantage in becoming a Christian when you're young because you will have less mistakes to have to live with. And then he's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's not of the royal tribe of Judah. He's of that little tribe from which David, their first king, came from. The tribe which remained loyal to David and his successors. Then he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, which is really just code for saying he's a really religious family that he was born into. And that's his parental benefit. But in addition to those natural advantages, he had also nurtured himself. So in regard to the law, he was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were a group of uh, the Jewish society who at that time were the most respectful and the most responsive to all the Old Testament laws, plus all the Jewish traditions which had accumulated around those laws over the previous centuries. Such laws and traditions covered every area of life, and Paul attacked any threat to them as not being the way to be right with God. So he says, and hence to seal, persecuting the church. He, I'd like to know if he was actually, whether he ever encountered Jesus face to face. He was probably in Jerusalem either at that time or incredibly shortly afterwards but we don't know. But when the church got launched he was first amongst those who would track down Christians wherever they were, Jerusalem, Samaria, Damascus. He tracked them down because he wanted to eradicate them. He did not want this Christianity to get off the ground. And some of those Christians lost their lives. They were stoned to death publicly, without any kind of uh, due process, just really mob violence. And consequently, he describes his former life as as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But he's been there, done that, and he's found that legalistic righteousness does not work it does not deliver. He considers all that, all that, had, uh, all that had given him, he counts as loss. Christians today might claim to be baptised. You can even claim to be baptised in the Church of England. Um, you can claim to have a Christian dynasty going back a couple of centuries or more. I can think of two men who many of us know from military backgrounds who have such pedigree. One, a brigadier whose ancestors were converted through Swiss missionaries to India in the 1850s. An English family in India converted through Swiss missionaries who could hardly speak any English. A great act of God. And there have been a whole long... um, a series of descendants who all served in the military, from major generals to colonels, brigadiers, SAS officers, and in roles such as the governor of Malta during the Second World War. Or a naval commander whose ancestors go back three centuries as Christians, each generation alternating between either being naval officers or ministers of religion. One of whom was the first clergyman to celebrate Holy Communion in New Zealand on Christmas Day, 1814, in what he describes as, this is the first time since the creation of the world that the true God has been worshiped in this place. Now as amazing and as fortunate as both those men are, Brigadier Ian Dobby and Lieutenant Commander uh, Philip Marsden, They would be the first to be grateful for their family lineage, but they'd also be the first to claim that that isn't what makes them a Christian. They are a Christian because they came to a personal faith in Christ. When they see repentance and express their faith, their trust, their belief that Christ's death on the cross worked and their sins could be forgiven. And that's what makes them Christian. You see, it's truly evil to kid someone that they can access salvation by their own efforts. It's evil because it doesn't work and it, des- and it denies the only way that does. In verses 7 to 9, Paul in fact considers everything a loss compared with the surpassing greatness, a way of saying that there's nothing better of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's what gives Paul confidence in the presence of God. It's an accounting analogy, a balance sheet between profit and loss. Paul considers everything else as a loss compared with the profit of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. The loss includes, verse 8, everything for Paul. Now when we read the Acts of the Apostles about what he got up to and we read certain kind of... Uh, Hints in his epistles that probably included loss of property, loss of any family fortune, loss in fact of family. Because in both cases he'd have been disinherited as soon as they discovered that he was now a follower of the way, which is how the first Christians were described. He'd have lost prestige. He was certainly, it is obvious that he is a very able person. He was a a prime pupil of the premier rabbinic teacher, Gamaliel. Marriage, he didn't get married. I mean, when you look at his life, who would want to be married to him? He's either never there or he's locked up in prison. He was deprived of his health. We don't know quite what he suffered from, but he, there a number of occasions when he was poorly and one obviously chronic debilitating condition he had. He was deprived of his skin, quite literally, when he was flogged many times. He was deprived of his freedom and he is soon to be deprived when he's writing of his life by the sword in Rome. Whatever he had had, whatever he missed out on having, he considers that as rubbish, trash, compared to knowing Christ Jesus as his Lord. From a temporal, earthly viewpoint, it may appear that he has lost. But from an eternal, heavenly viewpoint, he says that he has gained Christ. In our funeral service, um, We often say, we brought nothing into this world and we take nothing out. And in a physical sense, that is true, material sense, that is true. But if we have Christ, it is not strictly true. For a relationship with Christ will survive death. Christ is a gain, for he is our only hope of salvation. Verse 9, Paul wants to be found in him, that's in Christ. In other words, he wants to be seen by people and them identify him as being a follower of Jesus Christ. Verse 9b, not having a righteousness of his own, which ain't going to enable him to ever be good enough from uh, trying to keep all the, the laws, compared with having a righteousness that comes through faith, or trust, or belief, they all mean the same, they're all the same word, in Christ providing a righteousness. So there is, if you think, a righteousness righteousness which does not satisfy one of his own, a kind of do-it-yourself righteousness, one which is impossible to earn because just one sin blows it, one which has a bar or a pass mark set by ourselves, which is not nearly high enough. And it's not our verdict on ourselves which determines our relationship with God and our eternal destiny. It is God's verdict on us that matters. And there is another way by which this is described. Righteousness can be acquired, one, from God through Christ, By faith. And righteousness simply means being right with God. And Paul believes that in Christ, by faith, it is possible to stand before God, imagine it, who knows all about us. He is omniscient, he knows everything. Motives as well as actions. And to have the confidence to know that God will say to you, you are righteous, You are all I require of you. Welcome. Now that's the secure way, the certain way to peace with God. There's no anxiety that we might not have reached the mark. To understand that, we need to know the framework within which Paul is thinking, or the the framework within which he is operating in order to make sense of his confidence. There are two things we need to know in particular. The first is about substitution. Jesus was the full expression of the righteousness of God and therefore he matched what God the Father required. So he was able to be an acceptable substitute to take Paul's place and our places. He would take the condemnation which our lives deserved and he would receive the penalty our sins deserved. He was... What the Old Testament alluded to, the Lamb without blemish. And what the New Testament says, that he was made sin who knew no sin. The only thing we need to know about, and the other thing we need to know about God, is about his accounting methods. You see, we exchange our sin for his righteousness. Our sins are laid on Jesus and his righteousness is accounted to us. We understand these two things and we accept and trust that it works. And that's us in the clear with God for all time. And finally, and I do really mean finally, verses 10 and 11, Paul wants to know Christ. Now, to know in biblical terminology always expresses about the intimacy of a relationship. To know someone very well indeed, it's used of marriage in that sense as well. To know Christ, we need scripture. That gives us the objective knowledge of Christ. That is our foundation. And as we read it and understand and apply it to our lives and everything we go through, we discover in our experience that it is true and that he is with us. Next, he says, the power of his resurrection. This means that the Christ who defeated sin by never succumbing to it, and who defeated death by being raised from the dead, is alive. And so he is available to live in the cleaned-up version of us, so that that enabling, that power, that was in him can be in us as we battle our fallen nature, which still exists and which inclines us towards sin. We won't be perfect in this life, but we will be a good deal better than we would have been without Christ. Fellowship or partnership of his sufferings That's probably not quite the popular part of the package to be a Christian. Who knows, it's a blank cheque we're signing, really. Who knows what life might entail for us. But just take two items of the news this last week. The Ashes Bakery in Northern Ireland. They had been prepared five years ago to bake a cake for a same-sex couple. But that particular two people um, they wanted it iced with LGBT uh, slogans, which was at variance with that little bakery firm's Christian values. And They've endured five years of hate mail, intimidation, stress and costs in a court case which has worked its way up all the way to the Supreme Court, which is the highest in the United Kingdom. And the result, they were vindicated, which is a victory for free speech. He who honours me, I will honour, said the Lord in the book of Samuel. Then, uh, becoming like him, like Jesus in death, we of course don't die for the sins of anybody, but Christ's death was part of God's plan for him in the Gospels three times in each one, it says, it is necessary, or I must, or what he's saying the Son of Man, which is another way of saying himself, must suffer. It is necessary, absolutely necessary. He must suffer. Now, we don't suffer for the benefit of anybody's salvation, but we don't know what God will call us to do, and that may require us to suffer. And just as we, just as he voluntarily followed his father's instructions, so we voluntarily follow the consequences of our adherence to him. And the goal, to attain to the resurrection from the dead. When a believer dies, we often write, may they rest in peace and rise in glory. At death, our body and soul, soul being our conscious self, the essential us, The body and soul are separated. The body goes to the ground, either through burial or cremation. And the soul goes to heaven to be with Christ. Or, for an unbeliever, somebody who doesn't want to be with Christ, somewhere where Christ is not. The Christian is at peace, conscious, aware with Christ, but that is an interim period after death there will be one day a final, permanent, everlasting phase when Christ returns to earth, when there will be the last judgment, when there will be the recreation of of earth, and earth and heaven will be together, just as they were at the beginning. Paradise that was lost by human sin will be regained by God's sovereignty. And for those believers, a new perfect body, a body like the risen Christ body will be granted us. And we will live and work, though work without toil, in this new tangible creation with God face to face. No more sorrow, no more sighing, no more sickness, no more poverty, nothing adverse. And actually there will be no marriage either. So, I'm sure we'll have best friends. For the purpose of marriage will have been fulfilled. Biological reproduction is no longer necessary. Marriage is also for an insight into the relationship between God and ourselves, a relationship we can't see this side of heaven, but which we can get a taste of. Luther said it was the nearest thing to heaven on earth. But then, of course, it will be visible. And so we won't need marriage for that reason either. And intimacy, which will also be superseded by our relationship with God himself, which will overshadow all other relationships in heaven. The best Paul realizes is yet to be but for us in the meantime there is more than enough to be getting on with amen